Welcome to Be Your Own Muse, a podcast presentation of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. I'm Floyd Hall. In this conversation, I chat with Janetta Betch Cole, PhD, President Emerita of Spelman College, and co-editor of a new book along with Laura L. Lott entitled Diversity, Equity, Accessibility, and Inclusion in Museums. We discuss some of the inspiration behind that book, as well as the role that art has played in her life. As an added bonus, we have an audio excerpt of a dialogue between Dr. Cole and Mary Schmidt Campbell, PhD, current president of Spelman College, entitled Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, A Presidential Conversation. Moderated by Andrea Barnwell Brownlee, PhD, Director of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. That audio segment will appear near the end of this recording. My conversation with Dr. Cole takes place in the gallery space of the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. Dr. Cole, thank you for your time today. You are more than welcome, and I thank you sincerely for inviting me into this very special spiritual space to have this conversation. Dr. Cole, what was it about anthropology that sparked your interest mm -hmm. as, as a career path, as an, as an educational path? Mm -hmm. Well, I certainly didn't grow up saying, I'm going to be an anthropologist. In fact, I grew up from the time that I was knee-high to a duck, always responding to elders who loved to put the question, now what are you going to be when you grow up? We still do that to our youngins. I had a ready answer. I would be a baby doctor. And through my years of education, the exceptionally wonderful year of being at Fisk University and till it was the time that my father passed, um, I went to Oberlin College still saying that I would be a baby doctor until I walked into a class one day taught by an anthropologist. And when I left that class, I had said, goodbye pediatrics, hello anthropology. And I love to tell that story because I think it is such a reminder of the importance of a broadly cast liberal arts education. I went into that introduction to cultural anthropology, I had to sound out the last word, fundamentally because it would help satisfy my social science requirement. And let me also say that when I came home from Oberlin College and went to see my grandfather, by then my great-grandfather had gone off to glory, he asked that question that so many parents ask of their daughters and their sons. Papa said to me, baby girl, 
How are you going to make a living doing, what did you say? Anthropology, Papa. Fortunately, my mother encouraged me to follow my passion. And so I managed to make a living. But I've also led a good life. Even when I'm not practicing being an anthropologist, I'm always looking through the lenses of the human condition. So that's what I wish for all of our young folk, and especially for young black women at a place called Spelman. If art, art history, tickles their hearts, may they give in to falling in love and indeed become museum women. How often do you get back to campus, to this campus? The answer to your question is not often enough. Okay. But it's always a very special joy when I do return to Spelman College. My presidency ended in 1997 of course, I have come back. And it's particularly good to be back for this occasion. Now, this institution, the Spelman College Museum of Fine Arts, was established during your tenure. Can you, can you take me back to uh, that time? Um, what, was the, what were some of those early conversations like mm -hmm. when the idea for this museum mm -hmm. began to take form? You know, a museum, a place that houses art, one could say, or a place that houses objects, fails to say what I think a museum really is. And that is an exquisite site for the telling of stories. And on a campus called Spelman, where the mission is the education of women of African descent and others, there was a need to tell the stories of black women and other women of color through the medium of art. Now, obviously, that's what historians think they do. And psychologists think that they tell our stories in terms of how we are as psychological beings. We anthropologists, and I'm one of those, insist that we tell the stories of the world's people. But it's art. It is art that has this exquisite and unique way of telling stories. So, Back in the day, in my years at Spelman were 1987 to 1997, there was, if you want to put it this way, a bubbling up of this notion that this college had to have such a place. The arts in the Atlanta University Center 
have always been something of importance. Look at that ongoing presence of the telling of our stories at Clark Atlanta. But Spellman needed its own place. And look at it now. Uh, you have a new publication uh, that focuses on diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility in the arts, in the arts community. Mm -hmm. um, why does diversity matter in the museum profession? Mm -hmm. Diversity matters in the museum profession for the same reasons that it matters in every sphere of our lives. Because without it, there's no truth telling. I'm immediately thinking as I use that language of our exceptionally wonderful poet, Mari Evans, who went to glory a few years ago. But Mari Evans, perhaps best known for her poem, I Am a Black Woman, also wrote a poem that said quite simply, speak truth to the people. Museums that only present the art of some of the people. Museums that have boards where there are only some of the people. Museums where the staff is not representative of the diversity in our nation or in our world, then they're not speaking truth to the people. At the Mellon Foundation, in collaboration with two organizations, one, the Association of Art Museum Directors, the other, the American Alliance of Museums, did a demographic survey in 2015 and repeated that survey in 2018. Findings that we should not be proud of. For example, in leadership roles in American museums, only 4% of the leaders in roles of being curators, education, and certainly directors, only 4% are people of color. And yet we know that by 2015, people of color will be the majority of the people in the United States. So this book, which I edited with Laura Lott, the president of the American Alliance of Museums, and in which I'm happy to say the director, the sister director of this museum, Andrea Barnwell has an article, is a collection of essays written beginning in 2000, reproduced, but others written today. And in each of these articles, you hear the same refrain. It's the right thing to do, to have museums about all of us. But it's also the smart thing to do. And so when we speak of diversity, at least for me, it's important to also say it's about equity. 
It's about making museums accessible to everyone. And it's about creating a culture of inclusion so that folk feel not simply they can walk into a museum, but they feel included and welcomed in that museum. I read somewhere where you mentioned that your mother was very integral into introducing you to art mm -hmm. um, in the home. And I would love for you to maybe uh, Reflect on when art began to matter to you. Mm, I really like that question. When did art begin to matter to me? So early in my life that I cannot tell you. If I was three or four or five, but surely by the time I was off to first grade. I had these pushy Southern black parents who sent me to the first grade when I was five. Surely by then, I had fallen in love with art. My mother had the eye, a term that we use in the museum world. She was not trained in visual arts. In fact, her training was in music and in English, she was a graduate of Wilberforce College. But she had the eye, and she had the means, financially, to adorn our home with works of art. An original, perhaps, here or there, but wonderful reproductions. On the coffee table in our living room, were these stacks of catalogs. And I was too little to hold some of these big books on my lap. But I would kneel at that coffee table and go through those books. An incredibly important experience because I grew up in the southern part of the United States where people who look like me and like you were not welcome in museums. And if we had been welcome into museums, we would not have found the works of Romare Bearden and Elizabeth Catlett, of Jacob Lawrence, and of his wife, Gwendolyn Knight. So I was fortunate, but let me say this, in the homes of so many African Americans who do not have the material means that my mother had, you will find art. You will find things clipped out of newspapers and put on walls. How many African American homes will you find, or in how many will you find a portrait of Dr. King. You and I, if we are a part of the human race, have in my view an interest in that which is created. It takes a lot to smash that. 
It takes saying, oh, you don't want to go to museums, or museums cost too much, or there's nothing in a museum that'll interest you. Look at what children do who begin to color so early and unfortunately are told to stay within the lines when maybe being outside of the lines is where their creative spirit is leading them. So I really feel incredibly fortunate to have been introduced to art early in my life. One story I would like to tell you. In addition to my mother's interest in objects, I was very influenced by my great-grandfather. And I love to tease by saying who he was. My great-grandfather on my maternal side was Abraham Lincoln, Lewis. <laughs> Like many African-American men of that era, he bore the name of the individual who was often called the Great Emancipator. My great-grandfather did not grow up wealthy. He grew up poor. He was born in 1865. But my great-grandfather, with six other African-American men, founded an insurance company, the first insurance company in the state of Florida. Not the first black insurance company, the first insurance company. And in 1935, with money from the pension bureau of that insurance company, he bought a beach, American beach, a beach that we as black people could go and have our recreation, as he said, without humiliation. Well, Abraham Lincoln Lewis was wealthy enough that he and his second wife took a trip. Imagine this now. They went from Jacksonville, Florida, on a train, in the colored cars, of course, to New York City and took a steamer to Egypt. I have in my home a photograph. The date is there, 1937. They are on camels in front of pyramids. Abraham Lincoln Lewis and Elzona Lewis came back with objects, I have those objects. Not a single one is of museum quality. But I was taught by my great-grandfather that these objects had come from Africa, from Egypt. One is an ebony letter opener, so you know we're talking about tourist art. The other is a brass inkwell. I treasure those because as a youngster, I was taught that art was not only in those books on my mother's coffee table, 
but that from the very continent from which we have all in the human race descended, there were works, maybe not museum quality, but artworks. So many of our children now are denied those early exposures to art. When the budget is tight in our public schools, one of the first things that we say can go, get rid of music, get rid of art. They don't really need dance. Those are frills. Those are not frills. Those are incredibly important expressions of human creativity that every child has the right to encounter. Thinking about your recent publication, again, in this space of diversity, mm -hmm. equity, access, inclusion, for museum for current museum professionals, how would you want them to use this publication? How would you want them to respond to this work? Mm -hmm. Well, first, I would hope that in picking up this book, every single individual would begin, yes, by reading what my co-editor and I have written to introduce them to the book. But read liberally through it and see, first of all, that if you look at all of the contributors, they look like our world. They look like our nation. The writers, the contributors, are themselves diverse museum professionals. We don't see this as the kind of book that's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list. Our hope is it is a book that would be not just on the shelf somewhere, but read by students in every program that prepares students to be in the world of museums. We'd like to think that no museum director would ignore this book. Again, we are very proud of the diversity of the contributors, and I am particularly proud that the sister director of this museum has an article there. I don't know how many sisters and brothers and siblings in this gathering have walked into the Spelman College Museum of Fine Art. But you better go in there. <laughs> Would you say just a minute about the current exhibition? Because it's about women who lead. It is absolutely about women who lead. And, you know, Ann Collins Smith, who is the curator of collections, has curated an extraordinary. and it's meditations on the Spelman College collection. So there are about 25 objects that are indeed in the permanent holdings that speak to everything from soft power to claiming your space. 
is an exceptional show. It primarily is, uh, it primarily features some of our newer acquisitions and it's a knockout. I can't get enough of it. I walk into it every day and it's just a really, really exceptional exhibition. On the other side of the, of the museum, there is an exhibition by Amy Sherald. So Amy Sherald um, is perhaps best known as the artist who painted the portrait of Mrs. Obama. Have any of you all seen the portrait of Mrs. Obama in person? Mm -hmm. So you've experienced it. So when you go into the museum, you're in for an additional treat. This is a show that was organized by the, Saint Lu the Contemporary Art Museum in St. Louis. And I wanted to frame those two projects because we fundamentally believe in our mission. We believe in inspiring and engaging communities, primarily through work by women of the African diaspora. And so when we walked in, I saw Pam, I saw some, some other people that have come from, you know, come a quite a distance to really celebrate the works that are on view and our extraordinary mission. So I invite you all to join us in there afterwards and um, enjoy this feast for the eyes. There's a lot of eye candy in there, and um, I really, really um, look forward to hearing your feedback. But it's a very, very special place. There's no other institution in the country that has this very unique mission, and I look forward to your feedback and to your thoughts. I think you're in for a real treat. So, so I want to come back to our students for a moment, because the number of students that come to my office and say, my parents won't allow me to be an art major. They won't allow me. I'm so excited about the art history major coming, but they won't pay my tuition in order if I decide to be an art major. I need some practical advice. I need some very, very fundamental advice to give not only to parents, but also to the students that are so passionate about this work, they can't get it out of their system. What do I, what do I say to those parents? What do I say to those students? So I think one of the most important things that you've done today is to create a, a, a network of professional opportunities at major museums around the country. And so over the past, I don't know, three or four summers, in fact, you've been sending students out and, and they are working, right? <laughs> they have jobs, and they're getting paid for them. And so beginning to understand, really, what the profession is about, the fact that there is a, an area of expertise, the fact that they, there are opportunities for them, it's a, re, it's a reasonable concern for a parent. It's a reasonable concern that for the investment they're making, that their daughter will have and some way of making a living and paying the rent when they get out, that I, I think that's perfectly reasonable. So I think part of what we do here and what we're gonna to have to do in, you know, in years to come is we're gonna always be educating not only our students, but our entire community. Educating families, um, making sure we understand the range of opportunities, not just in the museum, but in the art world in general. There are galleries, there's the art market, there's the business side of, of, of museums. There's a whole array of, of, of expertise that students can employ. And part of our job is going to be to open that world up to our parents and our families to, to reassure them. I think that's a responsibility that we have. 
additional insight? The only thing I would, would add to what Sister President has said is if we can help moms and dads and aunties and uncles and grandmas to accept that daughters and yes sons have the right to make a living but they also need to be able to make a good life and a good life really is centered in one's passion and so if this Spellman sister is being told by her parents that she is to be a lawyer. She can probably make a good living. But if she wants to be an artist and have a good life, she's got to follow her passion. And I really, really like what Sister President has said about our responsibility as people in the museum world to educate not just our students, but families and communities about the world of art. Now, not every Spellman student who is into the art is going to end up being, you know, a Yinka Shonabari, a Romare Bearden, a Elizabeth Catlin. But how do we know that? How do we know that? And finally, the art of people of the African continent and the diaspora, at least those of us, the most recent immigrants, this art is being truly acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Look at what is going on in these auction houses. Yes, tremendous. <laughs> I mean, I think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask you to share a little bit about this. So, so, Carrie James Marshall was an artist in residence at the Studio Museum in Harlem mm -hmm. back 30 years ago. His work, one of his paintings, just sold for $21 million at auction. African American artists. $21 million. One, one piece of work. In the old days, you could have gone to Carrie Jane Marshall's studio at the Studio Museum in Harlem and probably picked up a piece of work for free. So the change, and we say that not, not to be impressive about the amounts of money, but to, to demonstrate how the surge of museum professionals mm -hmm. into the art world has changed the value of, of, of the art itself. And I, I think that's an extremely important part of the reality. And so when we're talking about training our students to be curators or to go into museums, we, we're understanding that it's not just about their job, that they, and we want you to have great jobs, but it is about your ability to make visible all the richness and complexity of our community and the contribution that we have to make to the larger culture. I wanted to ask you about leadership. Mm -hmm. You've held many positions um, mentioned here at Spelman College, 
at Bennett College, at the Smithsonian, and I wanted to get your perspective on how you evaluate opportunities and if you have an internal checklist mm. or any sort of um, parameters, if you will, that guide your decision making on which opportunities to take. Mm -hmm. Well, I can say this. I've been beyond privileged, fortunate, blessed to have had the leadership roles that I have had and the one that I currently have. And it will sound a little schmaltzy, a little trite, but in each case, ultimately, I listened to see if I felt I was really called to do that. At Spelman, or around the Spelman presidency, my two mentors, Marion Wright Edelman, Donna Shalala, got on either side of me and told me I would apply for that job. And I resisted, but I really did listen to hear, am I called to do this work? With Bennett, it was very clear when Dr. Maya Angelou looked at me and said, from the depths of those six feet of height and that moral authority, moral authority that she commanded, Johnetta, God is calling you to go to Bennett. Why aren't you listening? Well, it was a little dramatic, but there was a sense of calling. At the Smithsonian, it really required me to convince myself I was called to do that because I'm not trained as an art historian. I'm trained as an anthropologist. Now granted, my area of specialization is African studies, but I had to keep listening. Am I called to do this? A leadership role which I have now, it is not a job, it is service, is that I am currently the president, the seventh president, and the chair of the board of the National Council of Negro Women known as NCNW, founded by the legendary Dr. Mary McLeod Bethune, who founded Bethune-Cookman College and is now Bethune-Cookman University, led for 50 years by the iconic leader, Dr. Dorothy Irene Height, and recently led by someone not born here, but so of Atlanta, Georgia, Ingrid Saunders Jones. So at this stage in my life, in the third act of my life, I had to really feel called to give the time, the energy, the resources for this organization of organizations that has a membership of over two million black women. 
One should not accept a leadership role because it sounds so good to be called Madam President. One should not accept a leadership role because the amount of material resources one will gain are substantial. One needs to assume a leadership role because one's called to be of service. Service in the sense that Dr. King said, service. He said, life's most urgent and persistent question is, what are you doing for others? If one can answer that question, that I think there is something I can do for others, that's when you accept a leadership role. Final question, Dr. Cole, how do you stay current? How do you, how do you stay up on the things, the ideas, the information, mm. the opportunities? How do you stay current on the world around you? I am not sure that I am woke. But I struggle. There is such a different world now that I live in where information is not only in enormous quantities, but instantaneously accessible. How to read enough, importantly for me, to then put it aside and think about it enough. How to have those interactions with major thought leaders. It is a big challenge. And if we think it's hard now, think what's gonna happen as technology advances even more. One of the things that I say to myself, and perhaps it is simply to make myself feel better, is that I don't have to read everything. It is important for me to know what are some of the critical things to read. But secondly, I need to think. I need to think about what I am reading. And for me, it is incredibly important to write. Because in the process of writing, one reads others and one thinks about ideas. But I will tell you, my brother, being woke, as the young ones would say, in this era, it's more than a notion. Dr. Cole, thank you for your time. You are more than welcome.